You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me today is just a lone co-host, Dr. Crystal. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. We don't need anyone else. No, what a great well. morning to snuggle up with a <laughs> cup of tea on the sofa and listen to some science. Yeah. You know, you don't want to go outside in this rain. Why not just uh, huddle around the radio and uh, bask in the warm glow of scientific discovery and achievement? I was thinking that before I left home as well, but unfortunately... <laughs> <laughs> We're the ones putting the show on. So, it's, uh, geez, it's a great day out there. It's um, it's a bit... Uh, I looked at the bomb radar this morning when I was first coming... coming going shopping, and uh, I thought, oh, okay, um, no, this is not going to pass. This is going to be for a while. So Today pretty, is yeah. a great day for the water tanks of Melbourne. Yeah, my tank's already full. <laughs> it's been full for a while because I'm not watering anything. It seems it just stays full. Anyway, we've got an hour of science, folks. We've got a lot of um, really good guests uh, waiting out in the green room. So we're going to talk to them about some really cool stuff over the hour. But before we get to that, we've got some news for you. Dr. Crystal's fired up. What have you got? Oh, look, this week um, I, was, I, I was really excited by one of what I think is one of the biggest and best buyers tech stories of the year, where the FDA, the US um, Food and Drug Authority, have announced approval for a new cure for river blindness. Um, and it's the first new treatment to be FDA approved for, for this disease in over 20 years. It's a massive achievement. Now, river blindness is a pretty awful disease. It's caused by a parasitic worm. And um, basically, this worm gets in and then it sort of uh, lays all these larvae that are called microfilarial, and um, and they can travel all over the body, and they take up residency in your in your skin and in the eyes, and mm. cause this inflammatory response, and so you get this terrible skin disease wherever these microfilaria are, and also um, in the eyes it causes um, a damage to the eye and and blindness and it's 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 um it's called onchocerciasis and it, it it affects around 18 million people um across the world and thousands of years each people uh thousands of uh people go blind each year uh, due to infection with this parasitic worm so it's a pretty serious disease um and most of the people affected by this disease uh live in in uh sub-saharan africa okay um there is a current treatment called ivermectin um and um and you might remember that actually the people who discovered ivermectin actually won the 2015 nobel prize um which has actually helped um drive down the disease but isn't actually moving towards an elimination stage it's, it's uh. just not effective enough so it's it's clear that new drugs are needed to actually rid the world of river blindness and this is where moxidexin comes in now moxidexin is um an a compound that's known to treat worms in animals. So it's a drug that we it's currently approved for veterinary use and it clears parasitic worms. And so you might think, well, if you can use it to clear your parasitic worms in your dogs and your horses and your cattle, why can't we repurpose it and use it for humans? And that's where a not-for-profit biotech company here in Melbourne stepped in. They're called Medicines Development for Global Health. And Medicines Development for Global Health have set themselves up in a very unusual way as a not-for-profit biotech yeah. to do the development work. And this is kind of where you sort of think about R&D. Like, everyone talks about R, and no one really talks about the D. D. <laughs> yeah. And so that's where companies come in. And so this company set themselves up to do that development work, to take moxidexin off the shelf and turn it into an approved product for human use. Is it unusual for a biotech company? 
company to be not-for-profit. That sounds unusual to me. It is quite unusual, <laughs> but that's because of the, um, the indication that they're chasing. So they're looking right. to approve a drug for a global health disease for mm. which there really isn't a big profit margin. Okay, and yeah. so they work in collaboration with partners like the Gates Foundation and, and other philanthropic bodies, and they actually got investment out of a fund in New York. So their investors are actually um, a global health fund that specifically mm. invests in um, treatments for global health. And so they actually raised $20 million and it's taken them 12 years. So $20 million in 12 years to take a drug that's already approved for animals mm. off the shelf and, and actually this week have the FDA announce that um, it is uh, approved for human use. Because to do that, you have to go through reformulation, you have to go through m- new manufacturing, you have to look at is it actually effective versus current treatments. And so earlier this year... Um, there was a, a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine that clearly demonstrated that moxidexin was far superior to the current ivermectin treatment mm-hmm. for treating um, for treating this disease. And so, you know, they had to go through all of those large phase three clinical studies, huge studies involving thousands of people, to then put together this massive data package to send to the FDA and say, have we done enough to approve this for use in people? And this week the FDA came back and said, yep, you are green light, good to go. Is that process just... It seems ridiculously long. I mean, when you think of the numbers that you put out there for, you know, people who are going blind every year and that from this, I mean, you count those up over 12 years Mm. and you think, why is the process taking so long? I mean, is it just that hard? It's or about is it, safety. Yeah. It's about it's about really demonstrating safety and efficacy and actually making sure that this product is approved for human... To put your hand on your heart and say, you can mm. use this in people. You know, it, it's it's a very big call. And as people become more risk-averse and, you know, yeah. you, you, you start to build... You know, we've all heard of clinical trials that have gone wrong and yep. drug treatments that have gone wrong and terrible side effects. You know, but th- so there is this incredibly robust process to go through... But it does take time and it does take money. Mm. Um, and I think that's <coughs> something where when we hear about discoveries, we hear like, oh, this week we've discovered this and discovered that. It's like there's this massive stockpile of discovery that has to go through this long approvals process. But it's really fascinating because I think during the Ebola crisis, um, yep. we actually saw some very innovative and fast-track regulatory approvals and because of the emerging crisis. And then you think, well, if in a crisis situation we can come up with novel and innovative regulatory pathways... Why can't we just use these all the time? And so there's actually a change in the conversation right now at the FDA. And the FDA is kind of, you know, the biggest approval body in the world for this kind Mm. of thing. Um, And so about how we do that, how do we actually speed up the approvals process for medicines whilst not compromising safety, um, but ensuring that we can actually get these discoveries into patients faster and for less money. So it doesn't take so much time and resources to do those, to, to, to demonstrate, to collect that evidence. And it's changing, you know, with new communi- new modelling techniques, with new um, uh, simulation programs. Yeah, there are different ways of doing this. Mm. However, it does remain a massive challenge. But what it does is speak to the fact that of what an incredible achievement this has been from a Melbourne-based biotech company, 10 people, yeah. you know, tiny company. You know, it is the, um, I think it's the only, there's only been five um, FDA-approved medicines for neglected tropical diseases in the last 10 years. So this will be the sixth, you know, and so this neglected tropical disease space is massive and there's only been six new drugs approved for any neglected tropical disease in the past 10 years and this will be one of them. Um, you know, it's the first Australian company to actually um, take a, 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 a small molecule through this FDA approval process on their own because normally it's the big pharmaceutical mm. companies of the world who do this. So to have a small 
more biotech to it is incredible. Um, and they're also, yeah, this first not-for-profit biotech um, to have an FDA-approved compound. So it's it's a massive tick, 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 and to think that it all happened in Melbourne. And now that the FDA have given a green light, um, they can start rolling out this program in sub-Saharan Africa, and they will literally save thousands of people going blind every year. Yeah, that's a really big deal. It is a massive deal, and nice just huge congratulations to the team at Medicines Development for Global Health. Yeah. Excellent work. Now, I wanted to uh, just briefly uh, talk about uh, whale sharks. Because whale sharks. I just find whale sharks are phenomenal creatures. You know, they're just enormous for a start. Like these things are just, you know, huge. But one of the things that people are probably not aware of is that uh, whale sharks hang out at a few spots around the world. They tend to congregate. In whale in, shark bars? In whale shark bars. There's about 20 of them actually around the world, these locations where they tend to congregate. There tends to be more of them. They tend to hang out. And people have been trying to work out why this would be. And they're usually just sort of off the coast. And there's some around Australia, sort of um, Mexico, the Maldives. There's there's various locations where whale sharks hang out. Is that is that where people go diving? Well... For the whale sharks? No, or? <laughs> <laughs> no not so much. Um, but it, there's some interesting things about whale sharks that you sort of need to know. And wh- one is that whale sharks, you know, they, they're filter feeders. And so they want plankton and stuff like that. And, and so they need to go where that stuff grows and it tends okay. to grow around sort of where there's steep edges and stuff where there's a lot of water flow and so forth so they'll grow yeah. in certain locations um so, but, so the geographic surfaces of the kind of yeah you know, the, the floor of the ocean yeah and, the and it's sort of and it's sort of but there's lots of those areas around and and so you'd think well why are some more appropriate than others like why are there these 20 or so sites where that kind of geography really works and you've got to think about how the whale shark's body works i mean you so sharks are ectotherms, so they get their heat source from outside, not from inside. And so what happens is when a whale shark goes and it dives down, which it does to like 1,900 odd metres, like really deep stuff, um, the temperature down there is about 4 degrees Celsius. That's pretty cold if you're it's an ectotherm. pretty cold if you're an ectotherm, and if you're that big, mm. you're going to need a, you need to regenerate your heat at some stage. Yeah, because you're not like a whale. You're not warm-blooded. You're not like a whale. Mm. So, yeah, a whale shark, keyword being mm. shark. Shark, shark, yeah. <laughs> um, it's like a whale of a shark. Mm. Yeah. And so basically what, um, what researchers from the Maldives Whale Shark Research Program and the University of York have found is that these 20 locations have something in common. They have this sort of warm, sort of ridgy area over which you sort of you, you go a little bit further away from that and you fall into this drop-off. So you can imagine these whale sharks, they go into the drop-off, they, they do their business, they, they you know, eat what they, you know, absorb what they need at very low temperatures, but then really close by, they have a location where the water is much, much warmer, where they can mm. kind of heat themselves back up. You know, it's kind of like a lizard baking out on the on the rock. <gasps> and so these so, locations are, are ideal for the way they feed and the way their bodies work. So it's like the chalet that you go into after going for over after yeah. going skiing to warm yeah, back up by yeah. the fire, get yourself hot after you've you know been out and about, and you yeah. just go back in, warm back up, and then head back out to get your food. Yeah, the only difference is these guys are uh, fifty. Uh, 50 to 60 feet in length <laughs> it takes a little bit longer for them to warm up so but they can they can absorb that heat and then they can go into these these trenches and they can feed because that's where the the you know real the good stuff is growing um but then they are not too far away so if you, if you compare that to just you know the deep ocean where you know it's just four degrees everywhere um you're not getting that warmth that you would otherwise need um somewhere proximate to where 
where you where you want to be. So it's it's interesting. Um, they've they've sort of worked this out and realised that this is probably you know where you're going to find them most. Which means if you want to protect them uh, and you want to keep them safe, especially from things like are they, boat strikes. Are they and some, yeah, like uh, all large you know yeah. large creatures on Earth, they're they're not doing so well. Um, they're you know. You, you know where to do the protection, so you know where to look out for them. And it's interesting because wild sharks, um, you know, when you look at sort of some local economies in, in terms of, you know, various populations, it was it was fascinating to see in this article they, they drew up how much a wild shark was worth. So a wild shark dead is worth about 250000 US dollars in terms of what you get from selling the whole thing, which is I thought was phenomenal. You, oh, that's all right, okay. Yeah. But alive over the course of its lifespan in terms of, um, you know, what it can provide to, you know, blah, 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 it's estimated they're worth more than $2 million US dollars. So you want to keep them up. Even if you is just that just in terms money? of what they put back into the ecosystem? Or yeah, is that in terms and, of... and in terms of tourism and all, everything I, together, you know, these yeah. estimates have been made on, on what they're worth as mm. creatures. And and the job that they do, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's interesting that the reality is here is that the um you know these things need to be need to be preserved. Their, their numbers have been dropping for quite a while, and there's been this massive decrease in the sort of last seventy five years. Mm. So and they are they are one of the biggest creatures you know on earth. They're incredible. So knowing where they congregate and why is a really important step to being able to protect them better. Because often we don't know. You know, I'm not sure if you've ever seen some of those you know tagged great white sharks and so forth, and you see where they roam around the, the world and they're just everywhere. <laughs> well, whale sharks aren't quite like that. They have some some spots they love. Now we so. know what to find a whale shark hipster hangout. <laughs> We're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in a moment with our first guest for today. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Now you are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr Shane. In the studio with us now is Dr Sarah Dunstan. She's from the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity here in Melbourne. Sarah, welcome to the studio. Thanks a lot for having me. Look, it's great to have you in. Um, now, you work in tuberculosis. Now, it's a, it's a word that everyone knows, but I, I suspect a lot of people don't know what tuberculosis actually is beyond TB because um, we don't see it all the time. And, well, we don't see it at all, really, in Melbourne, do we? I mean, what, what is TB? And, and give us a bit of a rundown on, on health infection. Okay, so uh, TB is a disease caused by a bacterium. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a disease predominantly of your lungs uh, and it's passed from people to people uh, by coughing up the bacteria and it's spreading through the air. Um, so I think people in Australia probably think uh, TB is a historical disease, something that happened yeah. in the olden days. Um, but actually it's a, a really enormous problem globally. So uh, about... 10.4 million people a year uh, get TB, are affected with TB. Per year? Per 10 year. million people per year. Per year. And okay. about uh, 1.6 or so of those die. Wow. So it's an enormous problem. Uh, it's do, do you, sorry, if I can ask there, do yeah. you, once you've got TB, do you mm. sort of have TB for the rest of your life or is it something that you can live with? Like you said, you know, about 1 in 10 sounds like die from it, but what about yes. the rest? Okay, so uh, if you're treated, uh, you can recover from okay. TB. Yep. The, the other thing that's tricky about this particular bacteria is that uh, it infects many more people than actually get sick with it. Mm. So probably about, I think the estimate is something crazy like 1.7 billion people are infected with the bacterium. Wow. And, 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 only, and can they pass it on if they're infected? So they... Those people uh, that are infected, only the ones that get active disease right. can actually cough it up so and pass it on to people. Hmm. 
But so out of those 1.7 billion people, about 5 to 15% of those will go on to get active disease where they can transmit it from people to people. Right. But the other crazy thing about that is that it can hang around dormantly in your body for for many years. So you could you know, you could be infected and then a year, five years, 10 years or 20 years later, you can then end up getting symptoms and getting active disease. So it, it's hiding away and that's called latently infected TB. Do we know why that occurs? Does that sort of happen when you a person gets particularly stressed or they have other compounding factors, co- comorbidities? I mean, what, what suddenly says 20 years later TB is going to kick me in the butt? Yeah, so we don't know exactly why, but there are some situations where that happens. So if people become immunocompromised, mm-hmm. for example, or uh, so exam- people with HIV, for example. So, but that's not the complete answer. There's some people that we don't know why they reactivate later on in life. Mm. Now, you mentioned there are treatments for it. Mm. So is that uh, you know something you're treated and it's gone for good, or is it uh, you're treating the symptoms? What what are the what are the treatments about? Okay, so the treatments are. Well, they're very old for TB, so the the antibiotics they used to treat TB uh, were developed in the 40s, 50s and 60s, 1940s, 50s and 60s, and they're still the drugs that are used today. Right. So you're generally treated for about six months with four antibiotics over that time. So it's a long course of treatment yeah. um, and with, you know, four drugs, so it's not so great. Um, but once you have completed that treatment... Uh, the majority of people will be cured of the disease. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, you know, in four, four different antibiotics for six months, I can imagine it's microbiome just firing up there. <laughs> it's, it's very long <laughs> and very expensive as well when yeah. you think about the, the countries in the world where this disease is a problem. Yeah, yeah. Now, you've been working in particular in Vietnam, though, and you've been looking at, you know, the, the source of the, well, the, um, the part of the uh, bacteria that's actually, you know, one of the ones that's causing us. Mm. Tell us about that work, because that, that's fascinating. You, you, first of all, why, why Vietnam? Why did you choose to do the work in Ho Chi Minh City? Well, I was actually living there at the time, and oh, it was go. an enormous <laughs> uh, big problem. And actually, Vietnam is one of the, um, the WHO's uh, d- determined high burden countries for, for TB. So okay. it was an enormous problem. So as I was working there and, and thinking about what research was important, I really thought mm. TB was something to, to work on. Uh, and I have a background looking at genomics, actually. So understanding the genetic makeup of people, but also understanding the genetic makeup of the bacteria that cause disease. Yep. So for this particular project, we recruited uh, around 2,000 patients that have TB and we isolated the bacteria from their lungs and from uh, then we determined the DNA sequence or the genetic makeup of those bacteria to try and learn more about how the disease is transmitted within this population. And first of all, how do you get it out of the lungs? Is that Uh, you get them to cough something up or is that, are you inserting something? No, no. (laughs) Uh, It's part of the normal diagnosis of TB is that they have to cough up sputum, it's called. And then you diagnose TB by looking at the bacteria on a microscope slide down a microscope. Uh, But in doing that, you can also collect that sputum and then grow up the bacteria in in the lab in, in media and Hmm. then identify the bacteria, and then you can extract the DNA out of the bacteria 
and I, then you can determine its sequence. I, I suppose one of the things I find surprising there is that sounds like there are many types of bacteria that cause TB, is that right? I mean, or, or variants? Okay. I, yeah. I, I have in my head there'd be one. Yeah. You know, so it's one particular bacteria called Mycobacterium tuberculosis, mm-hmm. but like all living organisms, there is uh, a bit of variability in each person, so their genes are not exactly the same. Mm. So the bacteria have um, different types of strains or lineages, as we call them, um, that even though they're the same bacteria, they're uh, they're variable. They they have they're different variants. Right. Now I, I want to ask a question. I'm not sure I want the answer to, but mm. why is it that after seventy, you know, sixty, seventy years, this bacteria hasn't adapted to our standard way of treating it? Ah, uh, you mean in drug resistance? Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, yes, it has. So that's it has. Okay. so that's a major problem also in treatment of TB is this emergence of drug resistance and these. Uh, different variations that occur within the genome to make them resistance to the drugs. Mm. In fact, um, multi-drug resistance TB, and there is actually extreme multi-drug resistant TB in this world, which is actually resistant to every known antibiotic that we have. Wow. So there are currently strains of TB in the world that we cannot treat. Oh, that's not good. No, Mm. it is a big problem. So, Sarah, tell us about, you've done this genetic analysis now of Mm. the bacteria. I mean, what did you find? Well, what we found was that a particular uh, lineage or strain of this uh, TB bacterium uh, is more readily transmitted between people. So Mm -hmm. this this, uh, strain is called the Beijing lineage, uh, and we found that it infects uh, younger people and is more... If you're infected with this particular strain, you're more likely to go on to get active disease. Right. but a few other people have seen that as well in different settings using different kinds of tools. But what we did further to that was we identified a particular mutation in a gene in the bacterium mm. that could be responsible for this. Now that you know that that mutation is there, I mean, does that give us some sort of target that we can go after to sort it out? That's exactly what um, um, comes of it. So it is a new target that we can look at for things like developing these new tools that we need. So uh, particularly vaccines. Uh, the vaccine we have for TB is is really um, not very effective at all. Right. And there's been a lot of research trying to, to improve this vaccine. In, actually, this vaccine was just developed in the 1920s. So we're using a very, very old vaccine. Yeah, yeah. So any new targets that we can identify to help, you know, develop new tools for TB can help um, eradicate it. Hmm. Are there any other ways beyond just these vaccines and these treatments to deal with TB? I mean, it's something that's obviously transmitted through coughing and so forth. I mean, it seems like there might be some more mechanical restrictions that we can use to sort of halt its transmission, or is that just too hard? Well, I think the the easiest thing to do is to identify patients that have disease Mm. really quickly. So again, the tools we have for diagnosis are also very old, and there is a few new ones coming coming along the pipeline, and genomics is a really... um, is hold some hope there to be able to identify people that have TB and particularly drug-resistant TB yeah. very early. Mm. And if you can do that, you can get people onto the right treatment before they go out and catch the train and cough on everyone yeah. around them and transmit it. So if you can really diagnose very quickly, treat people very quickly, um, then that's a way that you can stop the spread. Yeah, because how would you know that you had TB and you didn't just have the flu or some other respiratory infection? 
Well, the thing is, TB, the bacteria is a very slow-growing bacteria, so it's a chronic disease, so it okay. kind of creeps up on you. Yeah, and, for a while. Uh, yeah, yeah. and um, you, you don't know at the start, yeah. and you're just uh, you're going about your daily life in your house and your work and, and coughing everyone. and infecting people around you. And my understanding is that because it's really slow-growing, when you take that sample from the patient and you have to grow it up in the lab, that also takes time as well. So you know, it takes a long time to get a mm. diagnosis, and that because we can't tell what antibiotics it all responds to it's a massive trial and error really to say well we'll start you on these four antibiotics and we'll treat you for six months and then we'll just see how you go mm. so what's next Sarah? What's next? I think, well, we've generated lots of data from this study of 2,000 patients in pulmonary TB, so we're going to do a lot more analysis on that, but also I think I'd like to really focus on um, ways to diagnose uh, drug-resistant TB faster and yep. perhaps using, uh, you know, new genomic techniques and also maybe, you know, some mobile devices that are uh, being developed. So I think there's uh, lots of promise. Mm. Sounds great. Look, it sounds like something where there's really some on-the-ground impacts, which Dr. Crystal and I were just talking about. So uh, good luck with the ongoing work and thanks for chatting to us today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks very much. Dr. Sarah Dunstan is from the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity. We're going to play some important station announcements and we'll be back in just a moment with a couple of guests from La Trobe University. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 R. We have our uh, second and third guest now in the studio, both from the Latrobe Institute for Molecular Science. We have Dr. Mark Hewlett and Dr. Mark Kansakul, I think. Did I butcher that, Mark? Ah, oh, it's all right. Not too bad. <laughs> so they're both called Mark, but one's Mark with a C, so it makes them easy to distinguish from one another while we're chatting to them. So, um, Mark, I'm going to start with you first. You guys have been working on this particular tobacco plant because it's got some, some interesting properties. So let's start with why you, what were you guys doing with this tobacco plant in the first place? What, what was that about? Well, it's, it has got some interesting properties. Um, we're using it as a model plant to try mm -hmm. and identify its innate defence mechanisms. Okay. I mean, plants can't run away like humans, so uh, pathogens and things, they obviously have to defend against those, so we're mm -hmm. interested in those mechanisms of action. So we're really keen to look at these particular molecules called defensins. Okay. So all species have these defensins, and they defend against a whole array of pathogens, so we're interested in understanding how they work in this plant. Okay. And are these molecules similar to the sorts of molecules you'd find in, in animal species? I mean, or are they are plant versions completely different? Absolutely. They're very conserved. So right across all animal and plant kingdoms, very similar. So obviously they're used in defence and it's a, a conserved mechanism of action. Um, so all species have these, yes. Mm. And so this particular tobacco plant has a protein that, that you guys are interested in. What, what was special about that? Um... They're quite novel molecules. I mean, they're small peptides. Um, they're circular in nature um, and they're very stable. Okay. And they also have unique properties in that we've identified that they bind membrane targets. So all cells are surrounded by membranes, as you'd know, mm -hmm. which protects the cell, keeps them contained. So these molecules are potent in targeting particular types of lipids in membranes called phosphoinositides. That's a big word. And they do so uh, to disturb and perturb the membranes and basically cause the cells to blow up. So they're very potent defence molecules. Okay, and when they... I mean, are these sort of broad-based sort of defenders? So when, when whatever is attacking the tobacco plant, they can take on pretty much anything as long as it has that physical structure or are there particular 
you know, targets it goes after. Yeah, well, there's particular phosphoinositides. So these are present in all membranes, in all living organisms. Mm-hmm. Um, they're distributed differently. But uh, this particular plant makes these molecules to target a whole array of these these phosphoinositides, so it can protect against a whole range of pathogens. Mm. Now, Mark, number two, you, you've been doing this on... I hate to call you that, but we're going to distinguish this somehow. Um, you've been working at the Australian Synchrotron on this work, so right. um, tell us about that. This is presumably about the structure of the protein you've been looking at. Exactly. So when... Mark and the other Mark, Mark number one. Mark number one. Yeah. yeah. When, when, when number one marked, uh, started looking at these at the activity of these molecules, um, his lab did some beautiful microscopy, and you could see when you put these defenses on cells, and they blow up and look really quite spectacular. Mm. So we have some. Well, there were some movies that looked like, you know, a volcanic eruption. It's really right. beautiful. They yeah. sound like they sound like little molecular hand grenades that are kind of thrown yeah. out. They're yes. kind of like they like a little molecular hand grenade that gets thrown out, binds to the surface of an invading cell, like a bacteria or something, and then just causes the whole thing to explode. That's exactly. a really great description. Yeah. I might have to it, use that. Really good. The hand grenade's good. I, I, I usually use a, uh, the the membrane chainsaw massacre instead. Oh yeah. But yeah, and um, so he showed me all these these movies and. Some question then was, well, how does that work? What actually happens there? It looks really violent, and yeah. clearly there has to be some some defined molecular mechanism. Mm. And so I'm a technically I'm a structural biologist, and so I'm interested in you know, how does structure translate into function. And um, my view is that if you can see what the molecule looks like, then you can get a better idea how it works. And I said, oh well, look, we just you know, look at the atomic structure, and I'm, I'm mm. pretty sure I can give you an answer. Mm. So that was. The, the, the throwaway comment that started my end of the project. And then to get a structure, we used, uh, we took the molecules that um, that Mark worked on and um, made crystals out of these. And then we took them to the Australian Synchrotron and then we collected data. Mm-hmm. And um, and then we managed to work out what does the defense look like when it actually attacks one of these phosphoinositides. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was, you know... That's a two-sentence statement that captured you know, a couple of couple years, years of work. Couple yeah, of yeah. years of work. Because my my recollection is usually that these these proteins are these like ridiculously complex-looking beasts when you mm. look at their structure. Is is this one of those as well, where it's well, it just is confusing to look well, at? Actually, initially I thought this was going to be really straightforward because the defenses on their own are actually quite small. They're not really big molecules. Okay. But what we hadn't realized at the time is when they bind these. Um, these phospholipids, then they form really big oligomeric assemblies. So you you need many defensins to cooperate to attack many dif- many mul- or many phospholipids at the same time, and that directly relates to their ability to blow up the membrane. So what mm. really happens is that you assemble essentially some sort of giant machete on the surface of the of the membrane, and then you just start hacking away. And, um, and in that process, take out the phospholipids, and this is how the membrane blows up. But we didn't know this, and so the structure we solved in the end was actually quite large. Mm. looked really beautiful, looked like half a donut cut, right. and then phospholipids sticking out everywhere. It was quite amazing, mm-hmm. and, um, but we, we hadn't expected that, and so it took a long time to... Right. to actually yeah. determine the structure in the end. Yeah. So I, I love this idea that what, what sounds like a really simple project, at some point in time, it was just like, hold on, this doesn't make sense. I mean, is this, is this when you were at this... I mean, and, and seeing is believing, right? So you're at the synchrotron and you're using this amazing piece of equipment that, that kind of lives here in Melbourne that's as big as a football field to try and work out what's going on. What, what happened when you, when you ran those initial experiments that, that led you to think, hold on, this is a much different story than we thought? 
Well, so we, when we collected the data, when we get an initial idea about how, how big is the molecule we're looking at. And so, and when I looked at the numbers, it was kind of, oh, this, this is quite big. <laughs> and we, maybe we messed up somewhere. And so we took the data home to the office and then started doing processing and, and analyzing the data. And it was, it was quite late by the time. And, um, so I started making some progress and I could see, oh, they were, many molecules but we didn't know how they all fit together and then mark number one had to depart so he took his he, he took a car a car trip to uh, to canberra because he needed to go and collect some more things from his lab <laughs> and so he was off i was still there and then kind of at about 10 o'clock at night i worked out how it all fits together so and i had a heart attack and then i called him <laughs> while he was on the hume freeway and i shouted down the phone <laughs> This is amazing. And yeah, so I went a little bit bananas and then he went bananas on the Hume freeway. It was really, really quite entertaining. I just love that because it really reemphasizes the point that the eureka moment in science is never I've discovered this. It's hold on. This doesn't make sense. Like, you know, it's always that, huh? Have we yeah. done something wrong? No, actually, it's, it's completely different to yeah. what we thought. I love those moments. Followed shortly after by a holy shit moment. Like we're actually, hey, we're onto something here. But also yeah. then, wow, this is really high profile because you published yeah. this in a quite prestigious journal, I understand. Yes, mm, major communications, right? Yeah, yeah it was great. Yeah. I mean, what Mark mm. didn't say is it was two years' worth of work, so there was at least a dozen trips to the synchrotron, 24-hour yeah. stints, and I think our wives were kind of questioning <laughs> what kind of relationship we had going on there. But a lot of work to get to that point, and it was complex from a simple concept, but the, the complexity, there was a lot of elegance in that complexity and it's like mm. a molecular lego if you like how these molecules work is quite amazing so what does this mean going forwards for you know for the immune system or for the discovery of new therapeutics or you know our understanding of how immunology and defense against pathogens works what's next mm. well i think we've identified a fundamental defense mechanism that was previously unknown so as you know, there's a lot of uh, problems with antimicrobial resistance. You've just heard from Sarah about TB. Mm. That's one classic example. So we need other targets, different mechanisms that we can target, and this identifies that. So we're hoping, you know, we can go down the preclinical pipeline soon, test these molecules against infections, and hopefully open up a new avenue uh, for treatment of uh, infectious disease. And it sounds like a very physical approach too. Uh, you know, often when I hear these stories, there's a very specific chemical, you know, binding, blah, blah, blah. But this sounds more like you know, you're physically ripping this thing apart. And I know that the chemistry is in there, but it's that to me sounds more broadly applicable as a result. Is that, is that Indeed, indeed. Yeah, I mean, TB, as we mentioned, is one example. Uh, mm. the, the paper we've just published, we showed how effective these molecules are at killing candida, right. a really important fungal pathogen. Mm. But we also think they'll be applicable to treating uh, enveloped viruses, HIV, flaviviruses, dengue, Zika virus, etc. So mm. universal mechanism to target pathogens. Yeah, no, that sounds really great. Well, uh, Marks, thank you very much for coming in and chatting to us today. It's uh, great to have you in. This is really, really interesting to see this. And uh, I love, uh, I just love the story of the Hume Highway uh, conversation. Um, it just goes to show that you never know when that will occur because <laughs> most convenient times as always. Uh, good luck with this work and um, great to see such fantastic work going out there at the Institute of Molecular Science at La Trobe. Great. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to Triple R. We're going to be back in uh, just a few minutes after some music with our final guest for today. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R FM in Melbourne, Australia.
In the studio with us is our final guest for today, Dr. Elaine Miles. She is a climate data analyst from the Bureau of Meteorology here in Melbourne. Elaine, welcome to Triple R. Thanks, Shane. It's good to have you in here. Now, before we get into some of the climate stuff, I just want to just touch on your background because you started off in art conservation. So... What I mean, what did you study? So my undergraduate degree in honours was in applied mathematics and physics. And it wasn't until my honours project, of which we actually shared yeah, a similar supervisor, um, that I landed a project where we were looking at using laser speckle interferometry to monitor canvas artworks. And mm. the motivation towards that being to um, monitor canvas artworks when they're in situ in a art gallery environment where the climate can change due to people mm -hmm. being in the room or the yeah. local climate um so i was working on that and took a year off came back started my phd and towards the end of that realized i still want to continue doing physics and applied science yep. that has an outcome that's useful for real life applications uh and i had a few friends who were already working at the bureau of meteorology as well as um, the big four and a few other companies um, and did some job interviews and landed a position doing data assimilation right. at the Bureau of Meteorology. Yeah. So, I mean, you're a data specialist, basically. I mean, that's why, you know, and you understand physical parameters of systems. Yeah, that's well, when it. people ask me what is my job, what, how would I describe myself, I yeah. always say first I'm a physicist with the idea being that as a physicist, you are a person who can take a lot of real-life problems and apply... A methodology and an understanding to it working with data is just part of the process mm. you can't do science without it yeah it's funny I, I find i work a lot with the you know medical research profession that dr crystal does as well and they have such a fear of data you know like they're kind of afraid of data a lot of the time whereas in the in the physical sciences it's it's air it's, yes. it's everywhere you know you don't hear about these these problems with data problems with data it's like uh, we, we don't we don't tend to have that same approach it tends to be it's core to the work i always. don't you can't do science without it yeah yeah anyway um now, Bureau of Meteorology, uh, you spent, first of all, a lot of work in the Pacific doing various things. So talk us through some of that work, because that sounds fascinating. So after my gateway step into the Bureau, working on the data assimilation scheme, uh, there was a project that came through called PACSAP. It was the Pacific Australia Climate Change Science Adaptation Program, mm -hmm. which is an AusAid-funded project. Mm -hmm. And there was work between Geoscience Australia, Bureau of Meteorology, CSIRO, and the National Met Services within the Pacific. So there was about 15 countries that were involved. And the outcome of that work was to, one, develop uh, climate change projections for the regions. And so, also so when you mean regions, you're not talking about regional Australia, you're talking about like our Pacific Island region. Correct. So we're, we're talking about 15 nations which don't necessarily have access or the cap capacity to, work, to run the supercomputer models mm. and to do the analysis while doing all their other tasks. So working together with all these agencies and the stakeholders, we were able to create mm. these uh, climate change projection work. But as well as that, we created a seasonal prediction services which are still running to this day um, and my part of that work was to look at seasonal sea level 
work mm. um, because where they are in the Western Pacific, they are very susceptible to sea level rise in general with climate change, but also to the seasonal variations due to El Nino and La Nina. Mm. So, so, so the countries we're talking about are like Fiji and Solomon Islands. Like who, who's, who's part of the gang? Oh, there's a large chunk. So I've done a lot of work with the Fiji services as well as Solomon Islands, Samoa, Kiribati, Tuvalu, Tonga, uh, Royal Marshall Islands, uh, Niue, and there's a fistful more that I've forgotten. Yeah, and I think it's fantastic that Australia is really stepping up and showing some leadership in the region because, like you say, these island nations don't have the resources that we do and to be able to have those projects centrally funded from Australia, I think it's part of our responsibility to our to our broader region Correct. As, a, as a geographical leader. So it's and good. I'm glad to hear that this is going on. Yes. And there, there must be a particular susceptibility. I mean, we were, we were just chatting right before we came back on the air and I was in Fiji just recently and there was a cyclone that hit Fiji while I I was I was there and looking at the just how low a lot of the areas you know that people stay are relative to the ocean level. Um, I was thinking, gee, the storm surge sort of stuff there is really problematic. On on you add that on top of changing sea levels, yes, and you know because these these countries, it's not just that they're already low lying; it's they all also are in an area where cyclones hit quite regularly. So that, that's got to be a big part of it, doesn't it? It's a large part of that, mm. and also we're talking about regions which are on the Pacific Rim, so there are also earthquakes and Volcanic. tsunami risks yep. that mm. come through yep. with that as well. So yeah, sea sea level in the Pacific region is a, it's a sum of many parts, and yeah. it's important to be able to have an understanding of how these parts work and they fit together so so what what sort of i mean talk us through some of the actual work i mean what sort of things do you do you do do you analyze with regards to that all that information that you know some that we have i'm sure there's a lot of satellite data there's a lot of buoy systems all around the world and we pull that in they don't have the resources to do the analysis what sort of what sort of actual stuff do you pull out so a lot of my work has been involved with taking a lot of forecast and model products Mm -hmm. and validating them against observations so as you mentioned we already have a lot of satellite data that comes through um, but we need to be cognizant that satellite data is very useful for the open ocean but not so much near the coastal regions like near the ports okay can i ask why, why is that it's just a matter of the mass issues so when one it's like when the satellite passes over whether or not it can identify if you're looking at water versus land mm-hmm. but also you as you get close to the shore because you've got bathymetry which is the shape of the land underneath the mm, water starts right. to play a factor you get these what we call non-linear effects where just because you have a wave coming up the energy gets transferred and moved around and so some spots um, you'll see like large uh, rise in the water and other parts it'll just the energy will dissipate right. depending on what's underneath the water exactly yeah. surfers surfers are very interested in this this kind of information yeah i'm sure so, yeah. yeah yeah so we so we use um altimetry data to look at the sea level to validate the open ocean processes and mm-hmm. the larger scale work and then at the at the coastal regions where people are actually located we look at tide gauge data so tide gauge is what we use to measure sea level uh, typically nearby ports where ships come through Um, and actually a lot of the tide gauge network within uh, the western pacific has been put together by another AusAid funded project called COSPAC and so that is about um, collecting ocean observations and delivering them out to the National Met Services and showing them how they can build products or monitor in real time what's happening with their waters. Yeah. So taking all those data sets together, you look at the, mo- the models to see that they're performing in the 
bringing together the, the right processes um, with the physics, mm. but then also looking at how, if there is a large event, are you capturing that by the coastline and could people use that to fashion warnings or to uh, craft messages out to the population so that they can react? How do you take into account the varying qualities that you get from these various data sources because presumably there are some that are you know really good and then there's some that you know my uncle down there you know doing the rain gauge thing in his backyard <laughs> i mean there must be everything in between and somehow you've got to factor that in when you as you say if you're going to put out warnings and it's got information from all of those different standards of sources i mean how do you how do you feature that into the models and so forth uh, so that's always a challenge is so when you work with data sets especially if you've been in an experimental field you realize that cleaning your data is mm. the number one priority and so a lot of a good ch part of my time is looking at the statistics over the data sets to see you know um, do we have any strange anomalies like large spikes coming through or are there big gaps that have occurred and if there has been uh, can we fill them in with uh, mathematical models or just looking at a climatology data set so we use that um, it also involves a lot of i find as a as the physicist who's working at the computer desk, um, having good communication with the engineers who are collecting the data sets mm -hmm. and the yep. people who are storing it. Because a lot of times you can pick up a data set and it might have, and if you're lucky, it'll have some metadata attached to it. That's gotten a lot, right. be a lot better over the past years. Metadata meaning the information on how it was collected and, and et cetera, so you, That's know, right. you know its source. You can yeah. understand the processes that it's brought the data together and, yep. and how it's being collected and why it's being collected because sometimes that can influence the observation that you're actually mm. looking at like mm. whether or not it's being benchmarked to the correct location mm. or to a site that's you know 10 years older and that haven't looked at it for a few years yeah. so yeah. understanding that so it's i i tend to leverage off my relationships with the people who collect the data sets yeah. to understand when and when they're not comfortable with it as well yeah. as just looking you know at the statistics that come through yeah. with it elaine it's fascinating stuff i mean I, I i love hearing that story about how how important the relationships are in this because it's not just the the, the hard science aspect of it that works it's those relationships and knowing you know whether this is believable or not and so forth as to whether or not we can utilize it and then you being able to clean it up accordingly thanks so much for chatting to us it's um it's fascinating it's great to hear that we we have such a, a big job to do in in the pacific region and that we're doing that mm. and good to see that there sounds like there's some funding for it i'm sure there could probably be more but um always like, inside <laughs> yeah, but you know, these in, in areas I like hearing about it. When you, in areas where you know people are actually going to benefit from this directly in in the short term, I think that's um, that's great, and it's good to see some money going into that. Be good to see more. Thank you. Thanks for chatting to us. Elaine Miles is the climate data analyst at the Bureau of Meteorology and one of our um, top people. Sounds like around the Pacific, Dr. Crystal. We're going to have to say goodbye to everyone and you know hand over to the team from Edith. Thanks. Fantastic. Yeah. What a great science show today. I think we've had some really good guests in today. It's um, Every now and then you get a good bunch. Well, actually, we usually have a good bunch. But, uh, well, I think yeah. it speaks to the depth and breadth <laughs> of the great research that's happening here in Melbourne, that every week we can get two or three amazing scientists in our studio to talk about all the great stuff happening here in our city. They're banging down the door. We've got plenty of them. Folks, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo. We are going to hand you over now to the team from Eat It. Uh, stay dry if you can. It's a wet day in Melbourne. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will chat to you again next week. I'm Dr Shane. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. 
For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.